Good morning. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to start today. Good morning, everybody. Guess what? We are restarting Boston service today. Yeah. Yeah, the question is, when are you all going to visit? That's the question. Luke chapter 7. Are you guys there? All right, when you stand, let's pray together and we're going to get going here. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you, God, for your presence and your spirit in this church because we know, the God, that we need you and we don't really have anything without you. We need you, God, and we thank you, God, because of who you are and because of who you are to us. And as we are here today, Lord, we want to ask that you would help us to know you and that you would help us to draw near to you and that you would allow yourself, God, to be known by us, that you would allow yourself, God, to be encountered by us, that you would uh, allow yourself, God, to be found by us, um, that you would rearrange, Lord, the way that we think and the things that we feel and the things that we desire and the things that we will to conform to who you are, to conform, God, to what it is that you've created us for. Thank you, Lord. Shine your light upon us and let us know you, God. Change our hearts, God, and our minds to be like you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, good morning. I'm going to read um, today a few passages that you're probably quite familiar with. Um, and did I mention that Boston service is starting today? Yeah. Yay. Okay. Not the most enthusiastic response, but okay. Um, I'm going to read a few passages that you're um, a little bit familiar with, and um, I, I don't. Let's just let's just see where we go. Um, all right, uh, Luke chapter seven, starting in verse thirty-three. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. And there's a very similar uh, um, set of verses in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says that wisdom is justified by her deeds. Um, uh, but um, essentially the same story here. I think, here's what I want to talk about today, something that's um, a little bit uh, unusual, but actually maybe not that unusual for um, for for you guys, because I say things of this sort all the time, but I just want to say it a little bit differently. Glory to Jesus. Um, wisdom uh, is what Jesus is talking about here, and in the scriptures, um, I, I think, so in the world, the world that you're a part of and that I'm a part of, the highest um, uh, form of knowing, uh, generally people call it truth. Um, and uh, truth is good, we want truth, um, but in the scriptures, um, there's, a, there's, there's something that's actually higher than truth, and it's called wisdom. Okay, good. <laughs> so we're all on the same page. All right. There's something higher than truth, in it, and, and it's called wisdom. And th that's obvious because truth is, um, is, is things like factual accuracy. Um, but wisdom is, is something that is, is much deeper. Wisdom, I, I, it seems to me, is um, a description of the way that God thinks. And uh, so... So wisdom is, is much higher than that. Is wisdom true, obviously, by definition? But, uh, but, but there's something more to it. All right, so now Jesus is highlighting a very specific um, attribute of, of, of wisdom here uh, in, in these verses, which I think is uh, really important. And um, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and offend some people, and I'm going to go ahead and say some things that are controversial, because that's what you pay me for. So um, that's like the entire job. So, um, so, so here we go. 
um, Luke chapter 7 and Matthew 11 um, is a story of, uh, which you're all familiar because this is like one of my favorite pastors in the entire Bible, but it's a story of um, John the Baptist who's uh, done everything that he's supposed to do in life and now he's in prison. And in prison, um, he begins to doubt whether um, he has uh, correctly identified um, the Son of God, whether Jesus is exactly who he, um, who he knows to be. And we know that John knows this. Um, because uh, the Bible tells us that it was divinely revealed to him, right? He's standing in front of him, uh, waiting to be baptized, Jesus is, and, and John is the one that declares, Jesus is not the one who says it about himself, John is the one who declares, it's, a, it's the, um, the, the, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Like, he has received this by divine revelation, right? But time passes, and, and, and things change, and John goes from being in the middle of a booming ministry um, where the entire countryside is being empty to go uh, to the river um, for them to be baptized by him. He's, and, and now he's in a prison cell. And, and the momentum has shifted and, and, uh, and, and Jesus' ministry is, is now successful and John's ministry is, um, well, he's in a prison cell waiting to die. And so um, John, being uh, rather human, um, sends his disciples, two of them, to, to go and ask Jesus, um, you know, are you actually, like, did, did I get it right or did I not get it right? Like, are you the one or is there somebody else? You know, did I get this correct? And 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 Jesus, um, the the way that the story is told in Luke chapter seven is is even more um, uh, is is even more um, uh, to the point. You know, Jesus um, listening to that question performs miracles in front of the the disciples of John the Baptist, and then he tells John, he says, "Go back and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard." And then, you know, uh, and then at the end of it, he says, "And blessed is he who is not offended at me," um, uh, which is poignant. Another sermon, another time. Afterwards, Jesus begins to um, uh, begins to celebrate the life of John the Baptist in this like very profound way, right? Which is just like it's a little ridiculous, is what it is, you know. For there has arisen no one born of woman greater than John the Baptist. I mean, that's that's pretty high praise. Like if you know, I mean, if, if God says it, like if you and I say it, we're just like ah, you're just exaggerating. But like if God says, it, I mean, that's that's pretty high praise. And then so then he talks about how great John the Baptist is, which we're not going to talk about today. All every single one of those verses is. Really, um, really amazing. But, but then he gets to the end of this and, 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 and then he begins to make this commentary and he talks about an attribute of wisdom that has been highlighted in the ministry of John the Baptist and in his own ministry, which is this. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. All right, so John the Baptist was um, someone who did not participate in the world at all. Uh, he was raised in the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey and wore a... Uh, uh, animal fur and like you know lived in the wilderness and was essentially uh, you know just a a total recluse until uh, God began to use him and he remained in the wilderness but people came out to the wilderness to see him because of the um, because of the extraordinary nature of his ministry okay Uh, so John the Baptist was 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 out there he was he would not participate in normal social life at all all the way out there but he was a, a great man right greater than anyone up until that time that had been born of a woman pretty great. And then Jesus talks about himself. He says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so, okay, so, so, so he's talking about, he's talking about the consensus of the religious leaders of that day, right? Um, this is not everybody had this opinion, but it was, a, but he's talking about the consensus opinion in that day. 
And he said, on the one hand, you have John the Baptist, and he's you know, not participating in social life and not doing the things that you would expect him you know, to participate in, in, in culture and society, and, and he's fasting, and, and you say he is a demon. And on the other hand, here I am, and I'm doing exactly, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and, and you say, well, look at him, and you're criticizing him for a bit. And, and, but, and then the defense of the, 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 the teaching here, the lesson here is in this last verse, and it's actually really incredible. He says, wisdom is justified by all of her children. And this is really interesting because what, it, what he's saying is that what is wisdom, which is for us of paramount importance. In the world, what is truth is of paramount importance. But okay, so what is wisdom is of paramount importance for the Christian, right? And he says, wisdom is not justified by the opinions of others. Well, he doesn't say that, but that's, that's the implication. He says, wisdom is not defined by the opinions of others. Wisdom is defined and, and it is justified, is known, is evidenced by the outcome of, of that wisdom. Does that sort of make any sense? Is it yes, no, yeah, okay, great. It's really important. And the, the reason that this is really important is because you and I live in a generation where we seek truth in consensus. The world does. You, you're taught this in school. That truth is found in consensus. And then what happens is, as Christians, we bring it into the church and we assume that wisdom is found in consensus. And it's not. Wisdom is not at all found in consensus. Wisdom is found, well, in God. <laughs> but, but, but wisdom is known through the outcome, not, not through what people think of you or what people agree upon. Consensus does not produce any of the things that you and I actually desire. It, it, it does not produce excellence. It does not produce breakthroughs. It does not produce um, uh, uh, radical lives. But consensus produces mediocrity. That, that's what consensus produces. And we now live in a society that is driven by consensus. It's, it's, um, and and it, it's, honestly, it's a plague but, but it, to, to, to society and to our economy and to, and to science and to uh, some other things. Oh, uh, where are the science? Oh. Zion, Amber, good. Um, uh, so here, I'm just going to mount a, a full attack on the scientific um, community in a moment. And so um, Eddie's, uh, yes, we'll leave him outside. Um, uh, okay, so, so the, the, the way that consensus works is that it, it produces mediocrity. It does not produce any of the things that are actually helpful to men and women. And as a believer, it is very, very important that you understand this, that you cannot look for wisdom in the midst of consensus. That's not the way that it's found. It's not the way that, that it happens. And there is, there is nothing to be found there. In fact, the search for, um, the, the search for being a part of the mainstream is, is essentially a form of slavery, right? It, um, sometimes we call it the fear of man, which I, I might read a story here in a moment um, that, that touches on that a little bit. It's also one of my favorite stories. Um, but, uh, it, but, but the point is that it's just simply not found with people. In Proverbs chapter 8, there's... Um, there's very uh, 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 wonderful, a poignant picture of wisdom. Uh, um, Proverbs 8 personifies wisdom as a woman. And it says, does not wisdom call, verse 1, does not understanding raise her voice on the heights beside the way 
At the crossroads, she takes her stand beside the gates in front of the town. At the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call my cries to the children of men. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, and I will speak of noble things. And from my lips, come what is right. My mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. And and then it sort of goes on to describe uh, what wisdom is and some of the things that wisdom says. But the way that wisdom is portrayed here is what is very interesting. Wisdom is not in the midst of the congregation of the elders. Does that make any sense? That's not the way that wisdom is portrayed. Wisdom is an outsider to the town. I don't know if we're lost or if we're thinking. Hopefully we're thinking. (laughs) Wisdom is an outsider to the town. Wisdom is not part of the town. Wisdom is an outsider. She's standing outside of the gates. She's not on the main road. She's not not among the institution at all. She's on the out. And this is wisdom is personified in this way, right? Wisdom is on the outside calling in. Hey, pay attention to me. Listen to me, and I will tell you the way of truth. And do you see, it's, it's not something that, the, the lesson here is actually very easy if you think about the way that it's, it, wisdom is something that is extrinsic to human culture and human society. It's extrinsic to the conversations, the relationships that we have. It's not intrinsic to it. it, it humans getting together does not generate wisdom. Wisdom comes from outside. And, and wisdom comes from God. I mean, we know that. Like, wisdom comes from God. Does, does that make any sense? And so when I look for wisdom in the midst of humans, I will never find it. It cannot be found that way. Wisdom comes to us when we pay attention to the things that are outside of what we know and what is accepted and what is uh, mainstream and, and, and what seems normal to, to us as humans. It comes to us when we are able to pay attention to a way that is different from the way that is, that is known to man. And that's true of religion and that's true of like every other field like that is out there. And when we create a system that is based upon that where, where wisdom is derived from consensus, in other words, um, when, when we say this must be true, and we don't necessarily say this explicitly, but we'll say it like, well, when we say things like this must be true because all the experts believe it, or this is the consensus of experts, uh, you are necessarily... Um, depriving yourself and everybody around you, everybody that's saying that to, um, from, from actual wisdom, from real truth. Because that, that's just not the way it works. Um, th- this is actually, to me, most um, obvious in science. Here we go. Science, thank you, Jesus, uh, today, primarily operates on, uh, uh, the, the entire scientific world revolves around this idea called peer review. And peer review is the idea that something is valid if your peers say that it is valid. Uh, and in, in uh, certain science, uh, it's, not all, it's not uniform everywhere, but it generally works this way. If you want to um, uh, research a certain topic, uh, you write a grant, and that grant is reviewed by your peers. True or not true? You don't, if you're not in academia, you may not know this, but Zion knows. Um, that, okay, you know, don't, don't uh, it's okay. Not gonna, not gonna put you up. Too late for that, actually. Um, that if you want to, uh, if you want money to research a topic, you write a, a, a proposal, and that proposal is reviewed by your peers. And if your peers believe it to be valid, then uh, you'll get some amount of money, some reasonable amount of money, determined, again, de- usually determined by your peers, to go research whatever it is that you 
want to research. And, um, and, uh, and then when you, on the other side of it, when you have something to publish, um, uh, some result that you think is uh, significant, um, again, you write, up a, write it up in a paper and you submit that to your peers. Uh, and then your peers decide whether or not it's valid or not valid. Uh, and then your peers decide whether it's going to be published or not published. And if it is published, um, uh, then um, it's deemed um, uh, valuable if your peers cite you often on the work that you've done. And this is not actually not always, this has not been the way that science has always been done. I don't know if you know that or not. A peer review has been in the life sciences for a while, but it's only um, trickled into like physics, for instance, like on the other side. Um, it, it, I think it trickled into physics in like the 1970s. And what's very interesting uh, about that um, is, so before, before um, uh, the 1970s, um, a lot of research in physics was done under um, uh, what is called blue sky grants. I don't know if you, uh, a blue sky, blue sky research is research that, that is done without regard for its practical applications. It's done just because, simply because somebody is interested in the topic. There's n nobody's desiring to make any money. Nobody's desiring to impress their peers. Nobody's trying to uh, win anything. They're just curious about a topic. And then so they submit a, a, a proposal for it and somebody, not a uh, board of peers, but somebody who's in charge of making grants goes, you know, this guy seems like a really smart guy. And this may or may not work out, but we're going to fund it because we're just going to fund it, and that's, that's blue sky research. And blue sky research essentially left physics in the 1970s. And what is really poignant is that physics has essentially not moved forward since the 1970s. That's not obvious to a lot of us that um, are not in academia or follow academia, um, because engineering has moved forward since the 1970s. And so, you know, for instance, you, you, you have uh, iPhones, and, and your, your, your iPhones are getting smarter and faster. And so, um, so it seems to us like there is scientific progress that is being made because engineering has improved since then. Um, notably, engineering does not operate under peer review, <laughs> any sort of peer review framework. Um, but, the, but the physics itself has not actually really truly moved, for, moved forward in 50 years. And the reason that it has not really moved, if you think about what, what happened in physics in the 20th century, like, like think about in 1900, if you went to school, especially a tech school, and you had to learn physics, chemistry, and biology, you probably know the state of science in 1900, right? It was like, I mean, we still didn't, we, like, they didn't know what the atom looked like. Like, you know, like, it was just like, really, like there was, science in the 1900s is essentially everything you studied in high school. I actually remember this, um, uh, oh, Zion, okay, 5012, was, was, um, one of the uh, like very first lecture, I think, professor gets up there and says, um, everything you know is what's, um, the, because what, what you learned in high school is essentially what science knew at the beginning of the 20th century. And it says, now, 5012, which is the introductory to chemistry at MIT, now we're gonna talk about what happened in the 20th century. And it turns out that actually a lot happened in the 20th century, but not like the entire 20th century, just the first like three decades. Like science in the early 20th century was so exciting because in chemistry, biology, and physics, essentially every year, certainly like every three to five years, you were getting mind-blowing, earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting discoveries. This is when like guys like Einstein just blew everybody's mind. This is when like classical Newtonian mechanics was like, well, that's not actually the description of, I mean, that's the description of the physical world as we see it, but it's not. It's not the end all be all of, of anything. And then in the 1940s, you have the explosion of the atomic bomb and like, you know, in the 1950s, you know, high, um, thermonuclear weapons. And I, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Like every few years, there's headlines in the newspapers of what scientists have discovered that have like actually 
like totally and completely just like blew everybody's mind away. In the last 10 years, the biggest thing that has ever that has happened, I think, in physics is the Large Hadron Collider, which essentially is scientists spending billions and billions of dollars throwing protons at each other like they're rocks. Like just we're just like throwing rocks at each other at very high speeds. And this is the latest and greatest breakthrough in science. And the reason actually is I think it comes down to this, this, this one thing, this, this, this mechanism of peer review, which is that in order to be funded, you need to be liked by your peers. In order to be liked by your peers, you need to be like, just like them. You can't propose radical ideas. You can't say anything radical. You can't think anything radical. You cannot you know, be described as or being thought of as being associated with anything other than what everybody else thinks. That's how you make progress in your career now. And because of that, we have fully stalled. Like, not we, I'm not a physicist, praise the Lord. But like physicists, like good physicists, good physics, good math, like, like it's fully stalled. I, I, I really cannot think of, very, I mean, in the life sciences, it's a little bit different, but like it's very difficult to think of a major breakthrough that happened in the last 50 years. Like it just doesn't really exist. And coincidentally, that's also when these sciences began to move to a peer review model. In the 1990s, there was a guy, um, what happened is, uh, why am I telling you this very long story? Okay, this is very interesting to me. In the 90s, British Petroleum BP, which is now uh, was a very big company, it was also a big company in the 90s, decided that, they, that science uh, in, uh, in energy, energy science was not moving as quickly as they need, wanted it to move because they're a for-profit company and they wanted to make money off of innovations in energy. And so, um, and, and so they decided they were gonna fund their own science because, um, because the government was not doing it in a way that was, you know, conducive to, to them, and so, so they hired a a, um, a, a physicist um, named uh, first name I can't remember, last name is Bra Brasson, um, uh, to to run a an internal fund. Uh, that would fund science, and this guy comes in, and 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 he becomes the leading critic of peer review, like probably in the world, the most notable. Um, I think in uh, in the mid '90s, he began to like say like peer review is absolute garbage. And he says like if you want to get a, a a grant from BP, which he was he was in charge of running, and and he's like we we're not, we're not peer reviewing you. What we care about is you're going to come in, we're going to interview, you, and we're going to see if we like you. Are you a smart person? Are you a hardworking person? Are you a person that is is curious? and motivated to actually make a discovery. Um, if you are that person, we don't care what your proposal is to study. We literally don't care. It doesn't matter you know, if you want to study rocks or if you want to study baking soda or if you want to study, like, it doesn't matter. Like, if, it doesn't matter if you say, okay, we're going to extract energy from seawater. You know, we're we're going to extract energy from, um, from neutrons. Like, it, it doesn't matter. Like, what we care about is you. And if you are a good um, smart, hardworking, uh, diligent person, if you can convince us of that, then we'll fund you pretty much as much as you need, as long as you need it, to do whatever it is that, that drives you, that makes you truly curious. And, and most of the scientific community hated this because it was in total opposition of the way that, that, that they ran the world. Does that sort of make any sense? But, but it highlighted a, a lot of the weaknesses and deficiencies of, of, the, way that, of way, the way that this model worked. The problem with, I, I think, with the way that we think about our lives, and this is, I'm telling this story because so so we really understand. All of academia now runs upon this model, and the entire world runs on this model. Truth is not determined by what is actually true. It's determined by who else thinks it's true. And so you have a media today where you know, CNN is reporting on what MSNBC said and what the New York Times wrote and what the Washington Post uh, you know, editorialized, and the New York Times is reporting about what CNN just said. Like, it's, it's not about a drive for what is actually true. It's a drive about what is consensus among people that are supposed to know what is true. Is that 
sort of makes sense. In Christianity, we do the exact same thing. We are not typically looking for what is true and good and wise in God. We are looking for, or many people want us to look for, what everybody else thinks is good and right in God. And the problem with that is that it simply traps us. It traps us in a mediocrity where we will never find God because we are looking for him in a place where he cannot be found, which is in the opinions of men. And so if you want to give somebody a marriage book, for instance, there are like three that are acceptable to give, especially the one by Tim Keller. Now, there's nothing wrong with Tim Keller, but he does not have a monopoly on wisdom. And the way that he thinks about whatever, prayer, wisdom, righteousness, grace, like this is not the, the opinions of God. This is the opinions of a man. And does the man have something valuable to offer? He absolutely does. But when we force everyone to agree, because this is where the mainstream is, then we will never as a church actually find God. I wasn't looking for a very vocal response. I'm not going to get one today. I'm just going to get, but okay. The, the way that this impacts your life is very important. But um, those of you that have chosen to be a part of this church against the advice of your pastors and your mothers and your fathers and your friends have probably already understood this. But, but it needs, I, I want to encourage you to shift this way of thinking into every other facet of your life. You will go far in God if you understand when to accept the opinions and the advice of others as the word of God. And when you understand when, the Lord will not speak to you through consensus. He will only speak to you outside of the gates of the town. And wisdom calls to the people of God, begging them to pay attention and to listen to what is wise, rather than to be a part of whatever seems right to everybody else. So Jesus says, John the Baptist was, was deemed a radical by people because he ate grasshoppers and honey and drank out of the river and he wouldn't live in town. He doesn't have a house in town, you know, in the gated community. So he's deemed a radical by people. And Jesus was deemed a radical by people because he lived in town and he hung out with everybody, especially the sinners who happened to have money. Like, you know, and especially the sinners, the tax collectors, which are the you know, the, 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 uh, some of the wealthy people in town, the, the bureaucrats, the sinners, the drug dealers, the prostitutes, like, 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 he, he, like on the one hand, you don't like the guy that hangs out with nobody because he's seeking God and because that's what God has asked him to do. On the other hand, you don't like the guy that hangs out with everybody because, he, I'm like, because that's all the mandate of God and what God has asked him to do. Um, and and, and he, he's just saying, like, it doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter that people want you to be center left or center right or center center. What matters is that wisdom is not, it doesn't, it, it, wisdom is found not in what people think of you. Wisdom is found in what, in, in, in the voice of God that cries out to you beyond the things that people think. And so there are a lot of things that, that as you know, people don't ask about because they don't, uh, some, well, now people don't always ask because they don't want to know the answers. For instance, I don't believe in saving. Don't believe in saving for retirement. Don't believe in saving for emergencies. I think saving leads you to mediocrity in your faith. Honestly and truly, I don't know of anyone that has a stunning amount of money in the bank that trusts God day to day. I, like, I just don't, I, I, you know, I haven't met a billionaire, honestly, that lives by faith. I, I mean, am I saying it's not possible? I think it's possible. I just haven't met one yet, do you know? And, and this, will, this alone will get a lot of your parents to try to move you out of this church. Oh my God, he's saying don't fund your 401k. How will you live when you're 65? Mm, let's see, buy bread from heaven. Like, you know, 
give us this day our daily bread. Doesn't say give us our bread for the next 60 years. Give us this day our daily bread. It, it, like, I, I don't know. Like, that seems like something that Jesus taught. And yet, because it's outside of the mainstream consensus, it's unacceptable to most people. If you and I choose to accept what is mainstream as the word of God or as wisdom, we will never actually find God. And there are a lot of people that in every facet of your life, you've be, um, decided to be shaped by what the blogs say or what you know, other people say or what the church says or what this book by this famous theologian says rather than what God has, has asked you to do. It, it, honestly, everywhere. Your career path, the way that you think about your career path is not, let's be honest, very, most likely your idea of what your career should look like is not what God told you it's going to look like. It's what the people around you, in some cases that you admire, the way that their career looked. Do you know? So first you got a PhD, and then you got a postdoc, and then you got a fellowship, and then you got you know, a junior faculty position, and then you know, five years later you wrote you know, 10 or 12 papers, and then you got a senior faculty position, and then you, know, you won a MacArthur Fellowship, and then they tenured you. Like, it, it, it looks exactly the way that everybody else's career looked. And unfortunately, fortunately, actually, fortunately, Fortunately, you don't have to do it that way. Also, unfortunately, if you choose to do it that way, I guarantee you, 100% guarantee, you'll end up looking back over your life and realize that you were no better than mediocre. No, okay, why is nobody, everybody's all like, I'm taking notes, Brother Daniel. 100% guarantee that you'll look back over your, think about what is like right now, Physicists that have been in this uh, quantum gravity, I don't know if you know, it, it doesn't matter, that have studied quantum gravity for the last 50 years, became dom a dominant theory in the 1970s, that have studied quantum gravity for the last 50 years and now retiring with nothing to show for it. An entire generation with nothing to show for it. The same happens in, uh, in, 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 in biblical studies, in, in seminaries. Like, there's generation after generation. It, it, this is a 20th century phenomenon. Generation after, ge like, you know, I think this might be the second generation now of, of, of biblical scholars, theologians, people that love God retiring with the entire generation with essentially nothing to show for their careers because they decide to study things like textual criticism that do not at all help people understand the will of God or the word of God or the nature of God's uh, a plan or, or like for men. But they decide to commit an entire career to studying what was academically uh, uh, thought of as being uh, uh, cutting edge that was not actually cutting edge. It was just thought of as being cutting edge by everybody around them. And after 50 years, you've eventually produced nothing that's useful. And it's, it's, what, what, it's, 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 it's terrible. It's terrible because we've essentially stalled our, our uh, like, yes, there are people digging up, like, more and more, uh, um, uh, you know, ancient manuscripts and, and shreds of this and that and the other thing. But, like, the text of the Bible has not, despite hundreds of thousands of hours of work, by thousands of experts around the world. The text of this Bible has not really changed. In, well, some would say forever, because, of, but, but like the English translation, like the, what we think of as the word of God, like has not really, I mean, yes, there are some minor modifications like between the, like, but you know, it's not really changed, has it? Has the message of grace actually changed? Has like what we understand about the gospel, what God wants, and you know, what is good before God and what is bad? Like, like yes, like minute, like you know, like nuances in the Greek have. have thank you, Jesus. But like, has it really? Have hundreds of thousands of hours of work actually changed this? Not at all. Not at all. But that's thousands of people's careers. Do you know? 
And the reason they did those jobs is because that's what they could get funded for. That's what people would look up to them for being. You know, so-and-so distinguished professor of Old Testament studies. That's a major seminary. But you and I cannot afford to spend our lives this way. Because what will happen when you're 70 or 80 is you'll realize that everybody thinks that you were awesome, but you've done nothing with your life. Wisdom is justified by her children is not something that you're going to say about yourself. You're not going to say, I've produced children, in, not in the, but you, you understand, like in the, in, in, like in the dif different dimension, not, not in the biological, but like, I've not produced children that justify the way that I've spent my life. And you need to do that. Like, like, like you, you have to do that. It, it, you cannot take the advice of people in such a way that, that you look back and you realize, no, I haven't produced children that justify my life. Because that's our job, right? We want to look back and be like, no, this was right, and this was meaningful, and this was valid, and this was the will of God, and we know that. We know that because of the children that it has produced. There are more things, that, I'm going to say, there are so many things in science that were discovered by accident, not by people looking for them, but by accident. And, and the reason that that happens is because that's the nature of, of both truth and wisdom, actually, is that it lies outside of human understanding. The, the real cutting-edge stuff lies outside of human understanding. How could you run an experiment to try to determine something when you don't know that that something exists? My favorite example of this is the post-it. You know what a post-it is. You, you've used one in your life. Are they the most awesome things in the world? Okay, can you believe this? Nobody ever sat down and said, you know, I think what would be really good is if we put a sticky on the back of a small piece of paper, but only, not the whole thing, so that would be a sticker. Just on, just on the upper 15% of it. <clears throat> because then it would be really useful. You could, you could, and you could, it really easy, you could move it around, you could rearrange it, and then we can make them in different colors. And people buy that too, and millions of people would use them to organize their daily lives, their grocery lists, and their to-do lists, and everything else about that. Like, can you believe that nobody said that? That this was that the post-it was was invented on accident? Can you believe that? That's stunning, right? Like, and there's I, I could I mean thousands of inventions that way because when you don't know that something exists, it's very difficult to go intentionally look for it. And the things about God that are true in God, that are cutting edge in God, that are interesting in God, are that sort of thing. It's not like, you know, we know pi to a thousand digits, so let's try to find it to a thousand and one. That is not like the, uh, the way that I hope you spend your life. That's the way that academia spends their lives. That is not the way I hope you spend your life. I don't think you're going to look at it and be like, I found the thousandth and one did, like, you know, and I want to know about her. I don't think that that's what you want your life to look like. And because we're not looking for pi to the next digit or the next largest prime number, like, because we're not looking for things of that sort, the, the sort of things that we don't know, but we know that they exist type things, like, you know, because we're not looking for that type of thing, you cannot operate your life on that kind of model. Like, today I'm going to be an analyst, then I'm going to be a senior analyst, then I'm going to be a junior manager, then I'm going to be a manager then I'll be a senior manager, then I'll be a junior vice president. Like, if you operate your life on that model and hope that 25 years from now you'll be managing director because you have not offended anybody along the way enough for them to not make you managing director, your career path, you know, in your company, you're, I, I think what's going to happen, I really, I think what's going to happen is you're going to look back and you realize that, that was stupid. You just wasted your life. And in order to exit that track, you have to, um, we too, like, like, have to be willing to walk down a road that is 
that is, that you, you have to know the voice of wisdom and be able to pay attention to it when it calls to you. The problem is not that God is not speaking. The problem is that the things that God is saying are not consensus things, and so we don't think it's the voice of God. There's nothing interesting I've ever done in life or in ministry that was a consensus idea. Nothing. Like, n- never. Like, n- I'm never, like, nothing. Like, nothing. I'm, I'm not saying there's no uh, goodness to be found in what the church already has. Of course, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff. All the things that we don't know, like, we, like, we haven't created any new, like, sound mixing techniques. You know, we're trying to catch up to, you know, what, what, <laughs> what you know, what, what, what rock music does today. Like, so it, it, I'm not saying there's nothing good to be found in men. I'm just saying that, like, what is found in people is not the fullness of what God has made available to us. And it's very important that we recognize that. A lot of your schooling is devoted to you knowing what other people think. And if you're content simply to know what other people think, then it's very unlikely that you will ever find the will of God for your life. Do you know? Very unlikely. When blue sky research disappeared from the way that science is funded in this country, so did breakthrough and innovation. Nuclear science was greatly hindered in the 1950s in this country because of, for safety concerns. They thought that if they, you know, move this neutron out of this atom, they might explode, you know, the entire city of Chicago. And so they were like, well, we better not do this. And so, th- like, there, there are things of this sort that are very important for us to understand. It is awesome for you to flame out. Th- that's really awesome. That's the way that breakthroughs happen. I think it was about 10 years ago when SpaceX launched their, um, like their second or third rocket. It like, you know, f- 15 seconds in the air, it blew up. It, or, you know, like, and everybody was like, oh, failure. Elon was like, fantastic launch. It's absolutely fabulous. You know, and if you're like, what are you talking about? It blew up. Like, because people have been traumatized by the space shuttles blowing up, like NASA's early space shuttles blowing up and the loss of life. These are, there's nobody on them. These are drones. And so, this, and, and so it's, like, it's fantastic. It was supposed to blow up. Like we're, we knew that it was not going to work. And we, like we were just trying to see, you know, will this go up you know, 30,000 feet, 50,000 feet, 80,000 feet, 150,000 feet? Like, we're, like we, we just want to take the measurements. Like, you know, we're not, we're not trying to get this thing to work at all. Hello? Does that make any sense? It's the same for you and I. First time that you know you uh, whatever you know lead a Bible study, lead worship, you know make a steak, like you you, you know um, braid your hair. It's not supposed to work. It's supposed to suck, and it's supposed to suck so much that you learn something from the way that it sucked. So the next time it can suck a little bit less. That is the entire like way that we find the will of God in life. Do you know? You have to be willing to take risks. You have to be willing to, to do the sort of things that other people don't agree with. Um, I want to really challenge you, um, uh, which um, uh, will happen at the end of this, to think about the number of things in your life that, 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 that you know that you know that you know is the will of God, that if you were to tell 10 wise people who are wise in the opinions of others, they would tell you this is stupid. Because if there's not a lot of stuff like that in your life, then it's not likely that you're listening to what God wants you to do. It's very likely that you're just walking down whatever path your elders and your peers expect you to walk down. And th- this will, 40 years from now, you'll realize how stupid that was. But, but, but what I would like to encourage you to is to realize it now and, and then not walk down that path at all.
All right, 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15 actually is one of my favorite stories. Because it just, and I preach about this actually, I think, decently because um, I like it. 1 Samuel 15 is when God rejects Saul. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to read most of this, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. And then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people, and none of them in Teliam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in waste in the valley. Then Saul said, to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest they destroy you with them. For you show kindness to all the people of Israel when they come out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And then Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Um, but he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted destruction to all the people of the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. Um, and would not utterly destroy them. And all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The words of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was very angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. And then Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came from Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went in Gilgal. Then Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep? This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. What then? I'm, I'm serious. Like, I, this is like, I love this verse. Whew, thank you, Jesus. What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Uh, no joke. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Highlight this. Highlight this. It's Samuel is he's sassy. He's strong. He's to the point. I love it. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, keep going. And Saul says, Oh, they brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said, Speak. And Samuel said, This is like where the real magic begins. And he says, Though you are little in your own eyes. Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spill and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil of the sheep and the oxen, and the best of things devoted to destruction and sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellions as a sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I fear the people and obeyed their voice. And that's the point of the story. Like that, that's, that's the, the line upon which the entire story hinges. Saul really thought that he was doing the word of the Lord because he had combined the word of the Lord with the will of the people. And God did not say, well, you know, you did 90% of what I asked you to do. That's an A minus. God did not say, well, you did the vast majority of what I asked you to do and therefore you did obey my word. Good job, Saul. Nobody gets it perfect. It's not what God said. God said, because you rejected 
my word, I rejected you from being king. Like, that's very strong for, for a guy that did 90% of what he was asked to do. Hmm? But the, what the, the thing that God has a problem with is not the proportion, the, not the percentage of the word, that, that, not the percentage of the mission that Saul accomplished. What he had a problem with was a guy who thought that the word of God could be mixed with the consensus of people. That's what he had a problem with. And you and I should also have the same problem. Now, the story is like fairly complicated, right? Like, and Samuel describes, the reason you've done this is because of your insecurity. You've been insecure since day one. Stop being insecure. Like, you're insecure despite the fact that God promoted you. Like, so it's complicated. The psychological reasons, the emotional reasons, the, 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 like all the pressures that Saul feels, all of those things are true. Just like it is true that you feel pressure to conform if you're in the media, that you feel pressure to conform if you're a lawyer, that you feel pressure to conform if, 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 if you're an academic, you feel pressure to conform. Nevertheless, the will of God God is that you and I do not conform. A few years ago when, you know, getting the COVID shot was a big deal, I didn't get the COVID shot. And then my colleague and I were going out to meet um, some new people. And he said, you have to tell them that you don't have the shot. And I was like, why? We're meeting outdoors. We're going to be sitting 10 feet apart in the middle of winter. No one's going to, and they said, because it's not fair if you don't, because based on your academics, based on who you are and the position that you have in the financial industry, they assume that, you, that you're, you're vaccinated. And the fact that you're not vaccinated poses a greater risk to them. Not true, by the way. Thanks to you know, further research that was done. But this is the, the, you, you pose a risk to them and you have to tell them because they are assuming that you are vaccinated. And you, you know, they don't know that you're radical. That is a form of pressure. Does that make any sense? That is a form of pressure that is applied to us all the time. It's just that like during COVID, it was obvious. And, and like the rest of the time, it's not obvious. And we've created every type of justification to conform to the world uh, because my employer requires it. Because I'm not, not if you t I don't care. Like, I don't care. What, because it's not, that, that's not actually, the, the, the much bigger issue is are you, like, like how do you deal with the pressure to be a part of the consensus? Because that's not where wisdom is found in God. Um, there is an obsession, honestly. Can I continue to? Might as well. I mean, you know, let's just burn the whole forest down at this point. There is an obsession with an ungodly type of unity in the body of Christ. A unity of mind. A unity where we all think and believe the same things. But the, the, the thing is, that, like, you know the, the, the parable of, you know, the emperor has no clothes, like, of the, of the emperor's clothes. Like, somebody, like, the emperor doesn't have any clothes, like, a lot of the time. And somebody, you, like, us, like, you know, has to be willing to stand up and say, wait a minute, that's not, that's not that, that, he's not wearing anything. Do, like, do you know? There's a lot of money being devoted to things like an energy being devoted to the body of Christ in a way that is okay. A few years ago, there was a I don't want to uh, should I use names or no names? Ah, we'll see. A few years ago, there's a ministry that wanted to run a big stadium event and they got the big the hoopla, they had the dreams, they had the visions, they had the leaders, everybody lined up behind them to do a, a big stadium event. And uh, listen, y'all, like, I mean. Honestly, it was such a long list of, of reputable, awesome people that like decided that this was like the will of God for like the generation that, that I was like, it probably is the will of God. And so I didn't attend, but we did, that's Alabaster, send money 
good amount of money to, to pay for this stadium event. Afterwards, this, the thing happened, and they didn't get the, the stadium half full, despite all the hype of all these major ministries, you know, getting people to go. They didn't fill the stadium like, to like half of its capacity, number one. Number two, I watched, not the whole event, but most of the event, and I was like, it's not that this is not God. You understand? Like, they are worshiping Jesus. The Bible is being read. We are praying for the lost and for the sick and everything. It's not that this is not God. It's just that, it, like, among church services that these people that I really value run, that, you know, the... <clears throat> God, God, I'm tempted to say names. not going to say any of this. Um, among the services that I have attended that these people have individually run, like, not together, but just individually, this is maybe, like, you know, 30th percentile. Like, it's not, it's not, like, some overwhelming glory. It's not like there's some breakthrough in, like, you know, evangelism. And, like, I mean, it just it didn't happen. It was just, like, an event. And then afterwards, the amount of justification that, well, you know, like, it was actually a really good event, and there was some rain, which is why people didn't come, and it was really hot, and so people didn't want to stand outside. And, but, you know, 100,000 people saw the stream. Who cares? Who cares? And so this was, I don't know, uh, I can't remember, five, seven, eight years ago. It was a while ago. And, and so afterwards, I, I said something. I said, because, because the hype back then was in stadium events. And so I said to myself, you know, is it possible, God, that stadium events is not actually, despite all the prophecies, despite all the hype, and despite everybody wanting to do them because they're, 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 there's so much like fuss around them, is it possible that stadium events is not your will, at least for people in this country, that for the charismatic church in this country, that's not the direction that you're going down? And then I realized something that, shall I just, I'm just gonna continue to try to offend everybody because might as well. At this point, let's just offend everybody. Unity is the way that Christians say peer review. That's what Christians mean when they say unity. They don't actually mean us all loving each other. What they mean is that you're only right if everybody around you agrees with you. It's peer review, it's Christian peer review, is unity. Not that God doesn't want us to have unity, he does want us to have unity, but, like, not that type of unity. Like, not that. Like, unity is when I love you despite our differences. It, unity is not, I love you because you and I are exactly precisely alike, and you're not allowed to disagree with me. Otherwise, I'm going to call you radical. That's not unity. Do you know? That's not unity. And a lot of times, like, things are, are, are shoved upon us because somebody said so, or because these 10 or 12 or 15, like, well-known, respected leaders are all, all agree. There are, sometimes, from time to time, I'll go to, or I'll talk to somebody that's outside of our church that's part of the, charism the wider charismatic stream, and they will assume that I support something or other simply because... Bill Johnson supports it. Like I, mean, you know, like, I mean, they will assume that because they have lined up, you know, 10 or 15, like, well-known people that support it, that, like, they're not even a question of, like, is this, are you, are you interested in this? Is it, like, not a question. It's just assumed what, because we're all going, we're all part of the same stream. It, that, that's not the way that that works. At least it's not the way that we are ever going to find the will of God for ourselves. Do you know? One of the reasons why I, uh, I understand that it's, it's actually fairly easy to abuse spiritual authority. Like, I, I think, let's be real, with most of our members, especially that have been here for a while, if I tell you to do something like, this is the will of God, as long as it's not like something super, super radical, like, you know, move to Zimbabwe, like, you're fairly likely to, to either do it, or either because you agree, or because you're, you're scared to, 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 to not do it. And therefore, you have to kind of be like, 
be, be very um, uh, uh, reluctant. I'm very reluctant to tell people that like, I know the will of God for their lives because it's just, there's so, I mean, it's just, I mean, I have to, like God's gonna hold me responsible for that, you know? So very reluctant. But there's another thing that actually happens on the other side, which is that sometimes you will preemptively censor yourself. And I'm talking to like, you will preemptively censor yourself because you are concerned that I will not agree with what you're about to say. And that you can't do that. Do you, like, do you know? Like, I, here's my hope. My hope, my hope that is that we will be such a, a, a church, a community of risk takers that, that a bunch of you will flame out in whatever it is that, you, that you're thinking of, of trying to, like, to do with your life. I, I really hope that a bunch of you flame out. I hope that a bunch of you come to church one day and decide that you know, you're thinking about such and such theological ideas, which is totally nuts because like, that, uh, not that I want anyone to believe things that are clearly untrue, but, but, I, but it's a sign of life that, that you don't feel the need to, uh, to believe something or to agree with something or to value something simply because everybody else does. There are things that I believe God wants everybody universally to value, but I hope that you arrive at that on your own, like of your own accord, because you heard the voice of God. Because the word of God through here or through here, like spoke to you personally, rather than because this is just the force of culture pulled you in that direction, you know? And it's very important to me because I feel like as much as I'm uh, grateful for all the things that God has done here, I feel like we don't take enough risks. When I say we, I don't mean me. I mean you. Just to put the burden on somebody. No, I, I, I kid you not. Like, I, I, I kid you not. Like, when I work with, um, uh, especially those of you that are near and dear associate core members, like, when I work with you, often, I, I, sometimes I wish that you would feel free to, it depends on what we're talking about. I'm not trying to breed rebellion and, dis, you know, and sub, insubordination. But there are plenty of times where I'm not asking you to tell me what you think I think. They're asking you to tell me what you think. And, and sometimes it's like, I'm not reluctant to tell you what I think because you may not agree with it. Good. Th that's, how we, that's how we go further in God. There has never been, to, to, my, to my knowledge, the vast majority of God moving, like in the history of the earth, major moves of God, revivals and reformations and things like that, did not happen because a million men marched on the mall in Washington, D.C., it happened because one or two or five or 10 or 20 guys, guys being humans, not males, <laughs> because often it's females, uh, uh, 20 guys got in a room and just said, we really think it's the will of God to go in this direction. We're not gonna get funding from anyone. We're not gonna seek anybody's approval. We're not asking for anybody's permission. We don't care about what our local bishop or denomination of the Catholic Church thinks. We're just gonna pray and seek God until God does whatever it is that we think that God is going to do. And God responds to that. He responds to that, to be honest, more often than he does with a million men getting together or holding signs and trying to get something done. Like, like just historically looking at the way that God moves. It's not typically, are we striving for unity? Of course we'd love to be unified with everybody. But just historically, it's not that often that God moves through a million people. It's much more common that somebody or five people or 10 people or a family or a village got together and said, we are going to seek this until it happens. Do you know? Every revival probably that you can name started with a group of people, typically young people, but not always, but you know, typically young people, and they pray for a year, three years, five years, 10 years, like however long, however long it takes for God to believe that you really mean it. And then God does something for them, and that thing like goes and it touches everybody, and, and, then, and then you know the thing blows up, and it, but it, it, it's not really, honestly and truly, the will of God typically is not found in the, in the consensus. 
of, of, of people. And, and so I'm not saying that you should never support things that are big or never be a part of like, but we cannot run after the things that everybody else is running after simply because that's what everybody else is running after. There's a lot of modern society that breathes this in us. I was very, um, can I say annoyed? Because annoyed, you're not, as a Christian, you're not supposed to be annoyed. But I remember once I was um, with somebody else's kid, um, a, a Christian leader. I can't actually remember who this is. And, and I asked him, um, uh, the kid seemed to be really bothered by something. I was like, you know, is this, is this, is this you know, really annoying? And, and the parents like, oh, we don't do annoying. No, 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 no. We don't do annoying. Just um, uh, you're disappointing or upsetting or something. You know, we don't do annoying. Okay. I was annoyed. So I'm not, I'm not as good of a Christian as other people. So a while ago, I was listening to YouTube music. This is a few years ago, I think. And I was, I was annoyed. And the reason I was annoyed is because no matter what Christian song I tried to listen to, you know how YouTube does the like, auto playlist? Like you select a song and it'll auto, like, it'll fill it, right? Like a lot of services. No matter what song I, I, I put, no matter who, no matter if it was an IHOP person or like whatever, the next like 17 songs would all be Bethel music. And, and no problem with Bethel music. It's just like most of the time I don't feel, it's just not, it's just not me, okay? Like it's not, it's not a criticism of them. It is not me. And then I would always have to be like, skip, skip, skip. And then I was like, how do I get rid of this? And then so I decided that I would downvote, like, you know, negative a bunch of their songs. I'm just trying to get them off my playlist. I'm not, I'm, I really don't have any problem with it. I'm just trying, like, is there like a block, like on YouTube, you can block the channel, like, you know, they, so they don't recommend it. On Facebook, you can be like, never, don't show me posts from this person again. And so I do that liberally. <laughs> Honestly, like liberally, like just like all the time. I'm like, never show me anything from this person again. I don't want to say, but YouTube doesn't allow that. So I'm like downvoting, like, I, I don't know how many, how much of Bethel music I, I, I like downvoted. And then it just brings it back, you know, like all the time. And there's just like always a songless season. Like it's just like, you know, because everybody else is listening to it. YouTube assumes that I want to listen to it because I listen to Christian music. I don't. I don't. And, and it's hard. It's, 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 it's tough, y'all. Like, it's tough to be a, a YouTube music subscriber, like, in, in this AI-driven world. In this AI-driven world. But it's part of the way that things work today. It's because other Christians listen to Bethel. Nothing wrong with Bethel. I'm glad other Christians listen. I'm glad that they make a lot of money, okay? And Maverick. I don't listen to Maverick. But because other Christians do, they assume that we all do. Or that we all should. Or that, like, just push it on you. You know, like, push it on you. So they're like, there are sometimes worship leaders will come in and, and they'll say, no joke, what are the songs that you guys sing and what are the songs that you guys listen so we can play those songs? And I always tell them, don't you worry about that. No, I'm, no joke. Like, like, don't you worry about that. You perform whatever God puts on your heart to perform or, 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 or to play. Because the last thing I want you to do is play Hillsong because we listen to Hillsong or to play Bethel because we listen to Bethel. No, no, no. No, you play what, that, that's the, if we wanted to play, we could do that ourselves. We have a band now. Like, <laughs> we have a band. You know, we could, like, we know those songs already. We, I want you to bring what's fresh. What's new, do you know? You remember, um, that scene in Ratatouille, you know, where the, where the frequent, no, I'm serious, no, I'm, I, I think about this sometimes, you know, where the frequent diner is, like, in the restaurant, and, and he's like, and he's like, well, well, what do you want to eat tonight? Well, you know, we have the duck, we have the foie, we have, the, like, you know, all the classics, and he's like, what do you have that's, what does the chef have that's new? And the, and the answer for a lot of us in the church is nothing, at least not for 100 years. And that's not good, do you know? Because sometimes what's new is that the kitchen has decided to make, 
you know, a, a, a pork chop with sweetened, uh, uh, with, with sweet sauce with some bitter melon on the side, and it's nasty. But at least it's new. At least it means that we're, that we're trying to find a wisdom and a truth that is outside of the consensus. Everybody knows that sweet and sour sauce with pork chops is delicious if you know how to make sweet and sour sauce. Everybody knows that. The question is, what are we doing that's new? And you can start a mighty good business doing things that everybody already knows how to do, but you will not make breakthrough. And so if you're trying to make a living, sure, do not rock the boat, do not upset your manager, don't say anything or do anything or have any opinion other than what 98% of other people in your company think. Fine. But if you're trying to do the will of God, then you necessarily need to stop looking around at whatever. Don't wear the things everybody else wears. Don't say the things everybody else. Do you know? And like, and, and, and anyway, all right. One last point, and then we're going to, uh, we're going to, we're going to close. Uh, in um, Matt, Daniel chapter 12, you remember Daniel chapter 12? Daniel chapter 12 is the last, is the last chapter in Daniel. And um, the angel here is closing up shop. He's telling Daniel about what, what's going to happen at the very end. And in Daniel chapter 12, there's this, there's this verse that, um, that really um, uh, kind of t- tickled me for a little bit. Um, all right, Daniel chapter 12, from the beginning. This is, this is, this is Gabriel, okay? Gabriel is um, usually accurate in what Gabriel says. Like, He's not a guy that said that Trump was going to get elected in 2020. Like, Gabriel knows what he's talking about. And so Gabriel, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, he says, at that time, this is the end of time, okay? This is the end. This is like how you know that you're going to get to the very end. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charged over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. There are a lot of people that think that like in the end, what we're going to get is peace and prosperity and blessing. Then Jesus is going to come back. Anyways, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to tell you that they're wrong. I'm going to keep going. Okay. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found in the, written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dusty earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise, that's you and me, right? We're supposed to be those who are wise. Are we supposed to be those who are wise? We're supposed to be those who are wise. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Love it. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge will increase. This last verse is, uh, is astounding. It's, it, it, it is astounding because... I don't think that people knew what this meant until, like, in the last, like, you know, 10 years or so, maybe. Like, truly and truly, because it doesn't make any sense. Many, this is like the great, like, definitive final prophecy of the end days. Many will run to and fro. It's like people going all over the place, everywhere. And he says, knowledge shall increase. That's incredible because that's exactly what we are living in right now. We are living in a generation where knowledge has greatly increased, but understanding has not moved an inch in 50 years. What pretty much every science department in the country is producing is knowledge. Endless reams of data, just data, 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 like data, like tables, graphs, charts, 
summaries. Like, like, like we have just endless data. Engineering has allowed us to have endless, endless, endless data. Just endless data. Like, knowledge is increased. But, and it's interesting, he doesn't say the counter, but, but, but there's, there's, it's, it's an interesting phrase, right? Because it's not just that knowledge, it's the only thing that's increasing. What's increasing is what people know because we've done more experiments and collected more information. What we, we know things to greater and greater precisions. We're able to put more digits at the end of the number. Like we, we, we can count more stars in that distant galaxy because the resolution of our telescopes is higher. We've been able to increase knowledge exponentially. And we've been doing it for the last generation. But understanding, I'm just gonna use physics as an example because I, follow, I don't follow biology. I don't know what's going on in biology. Like, I follow physics like, I mean, not, not like an academic, but anyways, okay. Understanding has not moved very much in a generation. There are a lot of people that have wasted a lot of time theorizing things that don't work. They have no shred of physical evidence. They're just models on a piece of paper. But knowledge is just, and understanding is essentially state flat. The whole time. And there's something about this that suggests to me, not just that like, there, it's the downfall of entire civilization, like in terms of like, our innovative and technical uh, superiority over other, but, but it suggests to me that, that there's something about the nature of, of conformity, the nature of consensus-driven thinking that tells us that it's close to the end. When people no longer look to be different, when they look to be all the same. That is when the world can actually come under one system of government that rules across all cultures, all languages, because, because it, it's just about what, what do the experts say? What, what do people think? Not me. Do you know? And uh, 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 me, I'm not that interested in geopolitics. I mean, there are churches where you could go and you can preach about the political implications of all of this and people get really up and up. Woo, praise the Lord. Uh, that's not my concern. My concern is not the grand stuff because we're a church of like 30 people. Like, you know, my concern is whether you and I have been, though the choices that we make in life have been driven by this way of thinking because we're taught that this is right. And it's not. So, I want to um, just, oh, I need to get going now. I've been sitting in the heat for a very long time. All right, so let's, uh, let's stand. Um, and we'll ask Sydney to come up because Emily's not available. She's playing in Boston today. Um, I want to ask you to just spend a minute here. I'm going to pray. And this doesn't sound like the sort of topic necessarily that is supposed to um, uh, uh, um, be like a deep prayer time, but I, I, I really want to pray, and I, I want to ask you to um, just get with God here for a minute, because I really think that the trajectory of some of our lives is supposed to be different from the way that it is now. I, I, um, I, uh, I'm not naming anyone, I'm not looking at anyone in particular, uh, but I just want to ask you to open your heart a little bit here. And I want to just um, ask you to um, think uh, and uh, pray and humble yourself before God and really ask God how much the opinions of other people and what other people think you should do or what is right or what is acceptable or what is normal drives your desires and your opinions and your choices and your intentions. Um, and, and then I'm going to ask, if you're willing to, you don't have to, it's voluntary, but I want to invite you to ask God to break you out of that mold of thinking. 
and it can start inside the church. I want us as a church to experience a type of unity where there's love and honor in the midst of different perspectives and different paradigms. And not only is that good, it's necessary. This church will not become what it's supposed to be if, if, if our members feel like they need to agree with everybody else here. You have to be able to be different. You have to be able to be who you generally believe that God has called you to be. Number one. Number two, there are a lot of, of us where our careers and the choices that we make and the expectations that we have for ourselves are based on nothing that we've ever heard from God, but solely on what people have told us life is supposed to be look like. And for those of you that are in peer review driven industries, it's harder. It's harder. Because it runs against your entire existence from nine to five every day. What gets you published is not at all necessarily the will of God for your life. What gets you a grant is honestly no reason for you to think that that's the will of God for your life. What other people will think highly of you for if you're researching or looking into, honestly, it, it's, there's just no reason to believe that that's what God wants you to do. And I want to encourage you to save yourself from a lifetime of performing for your industry, for your community, for your peers, so that they would think highly of you. And I, there are things to be discovered that men have never thought of, or no, there's zero consciousness that they even exist. There's an entire world of, of, of understanding and truth that, that, that has never entered into the mind of man. It's, just, it's not there. And for those of you that want to be scientists, I want to encourage you to pledge yourself to run after those things, not incremental increase in knowledge, but to run after those things. For those of you that are engineers, I just encourage you to seek God for paradigm-shaping ideas and breakthroughs. And for those of you that are just living for God in whatever way, whatever capacity in your life, in your money, in your, the, your lifestyle, in your, your, your choices, in the way that you fast, the way that you pray, the way that you do everything, the way that you manage relationships, everything in your life. I want to encourage you to be willing to go outside of town to hear the voice of wisdom crying out. There are many things today that seem fairly obvious to me that you're just not allowed to think. Like, for instance, America supporting Ukraine is a terrible idea. It's killing a generation of young men in Ukraine. You're just not allowed to think that if you're a Christian. Because you need to think that Putin is evil and anything we do against him is good. And there's many things of that sort that are just deeply grounded and implied in who we're supposed to be. And I'm just asking you, please, please, get before God and let Him break those things off of you.
so that he can really pick you up and use you. Father, you've chosen us out of the peoples of the earth to show us favor, goodness, and kindness, like Saul. Like Saul, we may think that we are the least and the worst and the poorest and the least fortunate, but we are not. We are blessed because of who you've called us to be. Now, Lord, save us. Save us from a foolishness that would trap us for a whole lifetime. Save us, God, from seeking the things that everybody else seeks. Save us, God, from needing the affirmation of others in order to walk before you. Save us, God, from bowing before the court of public opinion. Save us, God, from needing the affirmation, the agreement, or the approval of men. Not, Lord, that we don't care about what anyone thinks. Not, Lord, that we want to be different for the sake of being different or be prideful out of a rebellious spirit. We don't want any of those things. But what we do want is an intimacy with you and an intimacy with wisdom and the spirit of wisdom. That we don't need other people to tell us that something is right, to know that it's right. That we don't need someone to tell us that we should believe something in order to believe it. Thank you. Thank you, God. And I, I really ask, Holy Spirit, that you come into this place. I really ask, God, that you would help us to open our hearts right now, in our minds right now, in the name of Jesus. I really ask, God, that you would help us to see the things that we are not seeing, to chase after the things that we don't even know exist. I really ask, God, that you would help us to be a people that are willing to be different in the pursuit of wisdom. Thank you. I love you. I honor you, Lord. Please, please, God, don't leave this church alone. Please, God, do a work in us. In Jesus' name.